0: Donald Trump announces that he is going to be the presumptive nominee as he prepares for his CPAC speech over in Orlando. I have autoplay going. In other news, Amy Klobuchar and Ron Johnson fight over who believes what when they're having the hearing for the Capitol riots. That happened this past week here, so we'll talk just a bit about that. In other news, Liz Cheney is trying to tell people that uh, we are not going to be racist, so talk just a bit about that. And Indiana votes to eliminate their carry licensure. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Contemporary. My name is Jay Edgar. We've got a bunch of stuff to get to today and a bunch of smattering of very, very different things. It was hard for me to decide what was going to be the top story today just because there was so much little stuff. It wasn't a really, really big heavy news day yesterday i think the biggest news that most people would agree on was the biggest news was the tiger woods thing but uh, you know i'm not much of a golf fan and i'm not much of a celebrity guy so i did relegate that out to the back half of the show we will talk about it but it's not going to be until later on here but we got to talk a bit about this got to talk a bit about the markets and what's going on there and what we see off of that and donald trump and his famous cpac speech as well but before we get into any of that Head on over and bookmark freedomscoop.com. Pardon our dust. We are moving towards the end phases of getting that all rebuilt. I've got to get the description in for Contemporary and the Red Net Show, so those can get added onto the website. I don't know what we're going to do with the Freckles and Brit Show. I, I like them very much, and I hope that they'll stay a part of us, but they have not been participating as much, but we really, really do like them over there, so we do want to keep them around. One thing to keep in mind off of that there. So if you guys want to see more Freckles and Brit, go over to the Freckles and Brit show on YouTube and uh, give them a watch when they stream live on Sunday mornings. Let them know that you do want them to be a part of the Freedom Scoop Media Group because we really like them over there. So head on over there, bookmark the page, and get ready because once we get back up, we'll have a merch store. We'll be ready to go, and you can check out some of our swag and help us support great creators. All right. Looking in at the Dow to start off with here, it started off all down, all throughout the day, and a nice little rise at the very, very end of trading, and then dropped back down to bring itself just about flat with the day before, like 50 points up was all that it was by the end of everything here. Looking on at Bitcoin, that's coming back up to a rise. It cracked over 50000 once again yesterday, and then settled back down to $49,570, U.S. so The dip was there, and now it looks like it's going to be coming back. So we will be looking into Bitcoin, and I'm sure that's going to stay a big news story as long as they keep printing out the money as fast as they can. And we will be talking about the $1.9 trillion stimulus package as well towards the end of the day because uh, Schumer says that everybody needs to be united. Otherwise, we're not going to get this money, okay, guys? All right, looking in at IBD for the morning. Oh, maybe not. I guess they don't want me to read their article. Alright, looking in at CNBC for the morning. Dow reverses a 360-point loss and ends the day higher after Powell eases inflation fears. From Yoon Lee, Jesse Pound, and Thomas Frank. The Dow Jones Industrial Average bounced back from steep losses and closed the session in the green on Tuesday after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell relieved some of the concerns about higher interest rates and inflation. The blue-chip Dow wiped out a 360-point loss and closed 15.66 points higher, or 0.1 percent, at 31,537.35. The S&P 500 also reversed a 1.8 percent loss and ended the day 0.1 percent higher at 38.81.37. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Nasdaq Composite slipped a half a percent to 13,465.20 after dropping as much as 3.9 percent earlier. At its session low, the tech-heavy benchmark fell below its 50-day moving average, a key technical indicator for the first time since November 3rd on an intraday basis. The intraday turnaround came after Powell said in his testimony to Congress that inflation is still soft and the economic outlook is still highly uncertain, easing fears of a policy change by the central bank. The economy is a long way from our employment and inflation goals, and it's likely to take some time for substantial further progress to be achieved, the Fed chief said in a prepared remark for the Senate Banking Committee. Inflation fears have risen in recent weeks amid a sharp rise in bond yields as policymakers debate another round of economic relief. Investors worry that a spike in prices due to federal stimulus could force the central bank to raise short-term borrowing costs. The Fed is focused on employment and seems very willing to absorb higher inflation and excesses in financial market that bring financial instability in hopes of getting there, Peter Bukvar, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, sent a note. But, as seen in the long end of the yield curve, the markets have a say here, too, and they're speaking loudly. Hopefully, at some point, Fed officials will listen. High-flying stocks, which came under pressure amid higher interest rates, paired losses after Powell's remark. Tesla closed 2.2% lower after sliding as much as 13% earlier. The electric car maker suffered a 9% decline in the previous session. Apple's stock dipped just 0.1% after falling 6% earlier. <clears throat> Energy and financials, two of the best performing sectors this year, once again supported the market Tuesday as investors snap up names that they think will benefit from an economic recovery. The energy sector gained 1.6%, bringing its 2021 rally to nearly 27%. Jonathan Golub, Credit Suisse's chief U.S. equity strategist, believes cyclical stocks will lead the market to new highs in the rest of the year on the back of earnings upside and optimism on the economic reopening. Rising rates, a benefit to financials, and copper and oil prices, a boon for industrials, energy, and materials, further augment this favorable backdrop. Golub said in a note on Tuesday. Credit Suisse upped its S&P 500 year-end target from 24300 from 4200 previously. The new forecast represents a 11.5% rally from here. Small caps were the realtor, uh, relator rather, underperformer, with the Russell 2000 dropping 0.9%, Tuesday pairing its February gained to 7.6%. These beaten down value shares have been outperforming the S&P 500 in 2021 amid optimism towards the vaccine rollout and the economic reopening. So we'll be seeing a few things move here and there and what's going to be happening with that. It looks like They say that inflation isn't going to happen. I don't know where they're going to get $1.9 trillion without jacking your taxes through the roof. And that's the thing we have to focus on. If they're not going to inflate the currency, then they've got to jack your taxes. They have spent last year $4 trillion and put numerous people back out of work, which means that those tax receipts coming back in next year are going to be dismal. So yes, we might get a nice economic recovery coming back until they realize what's going to happen with the taxes. I mean, could we see sales tax? Could we see local taxes coming back out? Uh, Hikes in property taxes, that's another local one coming back out of that. Or are we going to come back with another big federal income tax? What's going to happen next year? We don't know. But right now they're going to come back and say, oh, well, it's all going to be fine just because inflation, that's not going to happen. But that's what we're going to see from that. Let's keep going here from the New York Post to start off the main news of the day. Trump reportedly claims he is the presumptive 2024 nominee leader of the GOP in CPAC speech. Well, that's going to cause and show a very, very big rift in the GOP right now, because without him being the president, the neocons who are, ready and willing and eager to go back to fucking war don't want him to be back there and they want him to be gone they want to be able to come back and say hey look look these people are over there they're attacking israel and hey don't you remember that jesus walked around in israel we need to go back and attack these people meanwhile raytheon just starts slipping hundred dollar bills out to them as they go so there's that rift and then there is i mean in the grassroots side of this there are a lot of people on the ground. Some of them almost to a religious fashion. Some of them are normal about it, but some of them almost to a religious fashion, who still believe that Trump is the messiah, and he is the leader, and he is the GOP, and all they want is him to be the president. So, from Mark Moore. Former President Donald Trump will proclaim that he is still in charge of the Republican Party and is the presumptive 2024 nominee when he makes his first public appearance at a conservative conference next week in Orlando, according to a report on Monday. Trump's keynote address at the Conservative Political Action Committee conference next Sunday will be a show of force and he will remind Republicans that he still has control of the bully pulpit, even if he's not in the White House, Axios reported. I may not have Twitter or the Oval Office, okay, but I am still in charge, will be Trump's message to the group, the website reported, citing a longtime advisor. The former president, who has been hosting Republican lawmakers at Mar-a-Lago, will huddle this week with advisors on his political future with an eye towards becoming a kingmaker in the 2022 elections. Senior advisor Jason Miller said Trump intends to remain a force among Republicans. Trump effectively is the Republican Party, Miller told Axios, the only chasm between Beltway insiders and grassroots Republicans around the country. When you attack President Trump, you're attacking the Republican grassroots. Trump is also expected to pay back the 10 House Republicans who voted to convict him in his impeachment trial and the 7 GOP senators who voted with Democrats to convict. Because of course he is. Why isn't he? Why wouldn't he do something like that? <clears throat> Earlier this month, Trump torn to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, calling him an unsmiling political hack who should be booted from office. Well, where's the lie? Where's the lie? <clears throat> McConnell voted to acquit Trump, but then blamed Trump for being practically and morally responsible for the January 6th Capitol riot. Trump has found support from state Republican officials who censured some members of Congress who voted against him, and he retains a database of millions of names from his campaigns and as much as $75 million in his PAC that he can shower on candidates he recruits to challenge sitting Republicans in primary elections. And a poll released on Sunday shows that 46% of Republican voters said that they would leave the party if Trump decides to create his own. Yeah, I actually buy that. I actually buy that. An indication of how strong Trump's support within the GOP, 80% in the USA Today Suffolk University polls said they would not back a candidate who voted against the former president. So, a couple things to look at there, and like I said at the top of the article, a lot of this does come down to the fact that there is the divide. And the establishment types... The ones who wanted to put Jeb Bush up against Hillary Clinton. The ones who think or thought that Mitt Romney was a good choice. The ones that want to follow and support Mitch McConnell. Who was ever eager to support Trump when it meant that his Kentucky voters would be voting for him because they liked Trump and they wanted to have somebody who supported Trump back in office. When he was trying to run in Kentucky, he supported Trump. But as soon as that election was over... The turtle gullet came out and said, oh! oh thank you for your watch. It's time for me to get back in and make this back for the establishment Republicans. And I don't really much care for the religious fervor that goes around Trump. I, Like I said, in my endorsement video, when I endorsed Trump finally kicking and screaming, I said that the spending had to stop, but... With a second term, he would have fuck you, Cloud, to start to go back and deny some of the omnibuses that are going to be coming through, which was my big hope for a second term. And I don't think we're going to see that right now. But I know full well that you still see the flags around. There's a flag hanging up where I work. You still see the flags. You still see the red hats. There are still people that are looking, and these are the grassroots people on the ground. It's not the billion-dollar industries like Raytheon that are going to be pouring money into these politicians' pockets. It's going to be the guy who works in a non-union factory job, who saw his job come back under Trump, who could scrape together five bucks to throw to Trump's pack. That when these people attack Trump, that's who they're attacking, so... It's a rift. I don't know whose rift is bigger, the one between the Trumpites and the establishment Republicans, or the one between the progressives and the neoliberal Democrats. There are two big rifts, and we could almost split this off into four political parties at this point, but we will see what happens at CPAC next week. I'm sure that we'll be watching that pretty closely. All right, let's look back at the Capitol riots from CNN. Ron Johnson just dropped a ridiculous conspiracy theory at the Senate Capitol attack hearing. From Chris Saliza, this is an op-ed, so this is not Green Check verified. Excuse me. Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson has carved out quite a niche for himself in recent weeks. He's the guy willing to push wild conspiracy theories about what happened before, during, and after the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Johnson has previously suggested that Speaker Pelosi impeached former President Trump over his role in the riot as a way to cover up her own malfeasance on that day, although he's never actually explained what Pelosi did wrong. Well, Don knew there was going to be a big problem because the people were out there saying there was going to be a big problem, and he ordered 10,000 National Guard troops, and Pelosi denied that. And Johnson said just last week that he didn't believe that what happened at the Capitol was an armed insurrection, despite ample evidence that it was. It wasn't. It should surprise you, or shouldn't rather surprise you one bit, that Johnson used his time in the first public Senate hearing on the Capitol attack to spread a single eyewitness account suggesting that they were professional provocateurs seated in the crowd on January 6th that led the largely peaceful gathering to turn violent. Johnson read experts, uh, experts rather excerpts, not experts, by, uh, from a piece by J. Michael Waller, which ran in The Federalist on January 14th. Waller works at the Center for Security Policy, a controversial think tank that has been accused of Islamophobia. Well, so have I. In it, Waller claims that a small number of cadre appear to use the cover of a huge rally to stage its attack, suggesting that these agents' provocateurs were A, not Trump supporters, and B, were primarily responsible for the violent storming at the Capitol. Here is one representative sample from Waller's massively long and often contradictory recounting of what he saw on January 6th. Although the crowd represented a broad cross-section of Americans, mostly working class by their appearance and manner of speech, some people stood out, a few didn't share the jovial, friendly, earnest demeanor of the great majority, some obviously didn't fit in. Among them were younger 20-somethings wearing new Trump or MAGA hats, often with the visor in the back, showing no enthusiasm either looking at the ground, glowering, or holding out their phones with outstretched arms to make videos of as many faces as possible in the crowd. In the same piece, Waller argues that the Capitol Police badly overreacted to the crowd, which turned things violent. And in his words, apparent agents provocateurs placed hundreds of unsuspecting supporters of the president in physical danger. They attempted to block exits for people seeking to escape tear gas. They endangered vulnerable people, including children and the frail and the elderly. So that's what we're seeing from the book. Let's listen to what Ron had to say. Uh, This comes to us in a tweet from Aaron Rupar. So, let's get that in.
1: Thousands of people I passed or who passed me along Constitution Avenue. Some were indignant and contemptuous of Congress, but not one appeared angry or incited to riot. Many of the marchers were families with small children. Many were elderly, overweight, or just plain tired or frail. Traits not typically attributed to the riot-prone. Many wore pro-police shirts or carried pro-police black and blue flags. Although the crowd represented a broad cross-section of Americans, mostly working class by their appearance and manner of speech, some people stood out. A very few didn't share the jovial, friendly, earnest demeanor of the great majority. Some obviously didn't fit in. And he describes four different types of people. Plainclothes militants, agents provocateurs, fake Trump protesters, and then disciplined, uniformed column of attackers. I think these are the people that uh, probably planned this. He goes on, the D.C. Metropolitan Police were their usual professionally detached selves, standing on curbs or at street crossings and exchanging an occasional greeting for marchers. When we crossed 1st Street Northwest to enter the Capitol grounds where the Capitol Police had jurisdiction, I noticed no police at all. Several marchers expressed surprise. The openness seemed like a courtesy gesture from Congress, which controls security.
0: And with that, I mean, there's, there's a little bit to unpack there. The biggest thing that I want to point out with this is that it wasn't wrong, according to the mainstream media, when the left said it. I mean, do you remember Kenosha? That seems like that was a century ago at this point with how fast the news cycle has been moving. But if you remember back in the Kenosha riots, the people who were out there on the streets were saying that there wasn't Antifa there, it was just Proud Boys dressed up as Antifa. They said the same thing in Portland. That it wasn't Antifa that was attacking the federal building. It was Proud Boys dressed up as Antifa. So this kind of rhetoric is not new by any chance. As far as what happened in the Capitol, before I would start to make an indictment to anything, I would need to see proof. But I do believe it. I believe it's possible. I believe it's absolutely possible. Once you get, and it's like they said, men in black, a person is smart, but people are really stupid. And once you get that many people up in a large group and they see one person jump in, the herd mentality kicks in and they go start pouring in after them. It'd be nice to sit down with Steven and actually talk with him about this and see what it is. Because he was there, like, right in the crowd. He saw what happened with that. I know he saw the Red Elephants guy standing up there, and there was a lot of talk about the fact that if they don't do this the way that we want it, we're going to storm the Capitol, but... There was a lot of talk of that coming up off the right as well. I could see either scenario at this point. I really could. There are a lot of things that unfolded before the Capitol riot that do make me feel like this was very planned and that somebody in Congress wanted something, especially given the fact that they had that, um, not defense bill, domestic terrorism bill, sitting right on the table that same day and it was 20,000 pages long but i also know that there was a lot of talk before i spoken with a coworker before who said that if biden wins then there was going to be trouble in dc that's part of the reason i chose not to go and that particular coworker didn't shoot, uh, chose not to go as well but you know i knew that there were going to be people coming cro- from across the country if they didn't get their way they were going to throw a temper tantrum report i don't know who started this at this point I see enough evidence that could point in either direction. And we may never know, because for the rest of time, we're going to see a lot of people using this as a way to get their own political points. So, that's what we see from that. Uh, Amy Klobuchar decided she was going to fight back on this one. Reading from Yahoo News, Amy Klobuchar shuts down Ron Johnson's conspiracy mongering at Capitol attack hearing. Yes, slay, queen! From Catherine Krawczyk. On Tuesday, the former leaders of the Capitol Police and other authorities entrusted with protecting the Capitol building testified about the January 6th attack, telling conflicting stories about what happened that day. One thing that clearly didn't happen was what Senator Johnson... Shared during his chance to question law enforcement leaders, an account of the day published in the conservative publication The Federalist alleging those who broke the Capitol were seemingly professional provocateurs and not the working class people seen protesting outside earlier in that day. Well, two things can be true at once. Provocateurs could have broken in and then the working class people could see this and say, hey, we got to go in there too. And off they go. That suggestion flew in the face of a testimony from former Capitol Police uh, Chief Steven Sund, who said Tuesday the attack was pre-planned and insurgents were well-equipped, coordinated, and prepared to carry out violent insurrection at the uh, U.S. Capitol. And when the hearing ended, Rules Committee Chair Amy Klobuchar made it clear that Johnson's allegations weren't correct. Let's have a listen.
1: There is clear agreement that this was a planned insurrection. So, and I think most members here um, are very firmly agree with that, um, and I think it's important for the public to know that. This was planned, we now know this was a planned insurrection. It involved uh, white supremacists, it involved extremist groups, and it certainly could have been so much worse except for the bravery of the officers. There is clear agreement that this was a
0: All right, I just want to see if this other tweet that's in this article is any different.
1: There is clear agreement.
0: No, that's the same one. So, yes, of course, she's going to sit back and shut this down, and Yahoo News and the mainstream media are going to come off and say, oh, well, she's totally right because she carries our narrative. And once again, there's just not the evidence out there to make a specific determination one direction or the other. They can have the hearing all they want. But we're sitting in a position right now where I could believe this could go either direction. Because I've seen enough evidence from both sides that this would benefit both sides equally. But that's where we are. Let's keep going. I got one here from the Daily Mail. Apologize for the I-aids of the Daily Mail, but, you know, what can you do here? Uh, from the Daily Mail. FBI is treating members of Congress as suspects in the MAGA riot probe and has swept up lawmakers' phone data during an investigation. Um, We have this from Nikki Schwab, senior U.S. political reporter for DailyMail.com. The FBI is reportedly investigating members of Congress as suspects in a probe of the January 6th insurrection, the world's worst insurrection, by the way. Oh, I left my iPod over here so I can do this now. This... This is what the insurrection was. Ready? A bunch of people got into the Capitol, looked around, said, "Oh shit, what do we do?" That's what it was. That's what all of it was. This this wasn't an insurrection. Definitely wasn't an armed insurrection. But you know they're gonna keep shoving that narrative down. The Intercept reported on Monday that within hours of the Capitol Police uh, break-in, the FBI began securing thousands of phone and electronic records connected to people at the scene. Through special emergency powers, the FBI collected reams of private cell phone communications, probably without a warrant, some of which were from lawmakers and their staff. Investigators are searching cell towers and phones pinging off cell sites in that area to determine visitors to the Capitol, a retired senior FBI official told the news site. The Intercept said investigators have relied on data dumps, massive dumps, okay, from cell phone towers in the D.C. area to map out who was there. From there, they're able to trace call records, but not the content of the conversations from phones. Yeah, if you believe that, I have got seaside property in Wisconsin I'm going to sell you. If you believe they're not taking the content of the conversation, too. The data is also being used to map links between suspects, which include members of Congress, The Intercept said. A number of Democrats suggested after the mega-riot that some of their Republican colleagues may have been involved. A GOP lawmaker have denied these uh, allegations. A 2007 corruption case against former Representative William Jefferson, a Louisiana Democrat, reinforced protections against the executive branch, sweeping up records from Congress. An appeals court ruled the FBI improperly seized materials from Jefferson's office. Yeah, probably do. they probably did. They do that a lot. In a statement released on January 11th, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse warned the Justice Department against investigating members of Congress's role in the uh, the attack, saying that the Senate should do so instead. Separation of powers, principles, generally, since when does Sheldon Whitehouse give a fuck about separation of powers? And the speech and debate clause particularly restrict the executive branch's ability to investigate members of the Congress. That's why the Constitution put those houses of Congress in charge of disciplining their members, White House elaborated to The Intercept. Once again, when has Sheldon Whitehouse ever given a flying fuck about what the Constitution has to say? In the case of the January 6th insurrection... I've asked the Senate Ethics Panel to take a hard look at certain members' behavior, including whether they coordinated or conspired with, aided and abetted, or gave aid and comfort to the insurrectionists. The Rhode Island Democrat continued. So. Definitely some things to watch with on that. And I mean, the FBI doesn't give a fuck what the Constitution says. Since when would they? They have no interest. But... we go that's what they have to say about that all right let's see what else do we have here let's talk about the kids in cages jordan the new cage description just dropped maybe
1: this is not kids being kept in cages this is this is is kids This is a facility that was opened. That's going to follow the same standards as other HHS facilities. This is not kids being kept in cages. This is, this is kids. This is a facility that was opened. That's going to follow the same standards as other HHS facilities. This is not kids being kept in.
0: It's not kids in cages. It's just another facility. Okay. Stop asking questions. All right. Reading from the New York post. Maybe. Maybe it's got to take a second to think. Huh? Let's throw the refresh button up and see what happens. Come on. All right. White House denies kids in cages. Uh, right. It'll just reload on me. White House denies kids in cages hypocrisy charges as detention centers reopen. From Stephen Nelson. One person's kids in cages is another's reopening overflow facilities. The Biden White House is being accused of hypocrisy, for numerous things, but we'll talk about one in specific, for reopening border facilities to house migrant teenagers, including one that both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris savaged then-President Donald Trump about on the campaign trail and before. Biden blasted Trump repeatedly for separating families and failing to reunite them, decrying during an October debate that migrant children were ripped from their parents' arms and separated. Harris, then a senator, said in 2018, at the peak of the family separation controversy, that Trump's treatment of migrants was a crime against humanity. But on Monday, the Department of Health and Human Services reopened a facility in Texas to house about 700 migrants aged 13 to 17. A second facility in Florida is also being reopened. The decision rankled immigration advocates and sparked allegations of hypocrisy given the previous Biden-Harris condemnation. White House Press Secretary Jen Sackey was pressed about the issue at her briefing Tuesday and circled back around the issue, insisting it was a temporary measure for unaccompanied minors that is necessitated by the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a temporary measure the first time. It was a temporary measure when Obama was doing it. It was a temporary measure when Trump was doing it. It's, I mean, this is not new for the COVID pandemic. It was always a temporary measure. To go out and check, make sure there's family that can come back and sponsor these people. Figure that buck out. It's just a matter of the execution of it. And of course, they had to push the execution in the worst possible way because the orange man is indeed bad. But yes, the cages are still going. It's an overflow facility. It's a statue. All right. Let's keep going here. From the Hill. Romney and Cotton proposed $10 minimum wage plan from Niv Ellis. Senators Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton. On Tuesday, it rolled out a proposal to increase the minimum wage to $10 an hour over four years and tighten enforcement on hiring undocumented workers. For millions of Americans, the rising cost of living has made it harder to make ends meet, but the federal minimum wage has not been increased in more than 10 years, Romney said. The bill is a counterpoint to Democrats who are pushing to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. Critics of the Democratic bill say the quick increase, which would over double the current $725 minimum in just four years, would burden small businesses. A Congressional Budget Office report of the plan estimated it would lead to 1.4 million fewer jobs, but also lift 0. 0.9 million people out of poverty. 0. 0.9 million. I've never ever seen that terminology used. Usually they'll just say 900,000. That's new. So we'll take 900,000 people out of poverty, but we'll put 1.4 million people back the fuck in it. Excuse me. But the CBO model also finds that setting the goal to $10 would leave both employment levels and poverty levels virtually unchanged. The Democratic plan, which is included in the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill advancing through Congress, faces significant hurdles. Joe Manchin says he believes... An $11 an hour minimum would be more appropriate for his state, and Senator Kirsten Sinema objected to including the minimum wage hike in the COVID-19 relief bill. Well, no, it's a poison pill to make sure that they can come back and rally and say that the evil Republicans don't want you to get your money. That's part of what they do with some of these bills, especially if they don't want to come back and spend the money, which I don't think they do. I think they want to keep it in their pockets. But they want to make it look like they're fighting the good fight for you guys, so they'll stick a poison pill in it, like... $15 $15 an hour minimum wage and say that we can't pass it without this because of the way that we worded it. It's all about the game, Brian D. Democrats cannot lose a single Democratic vote if they are to approve the bill in the 50-50 Senate, where Vice President Harris can cast a tie-breaking vote. The minimum wage hikes, uh, hike rather also faces procedural hurdles in the budget reconciliation process. The Romney Cotton plan, which would also delay increasing the minimum wage until after the pandemic ends, would mandate that all employers use e-Verify to ensure that they do not hire undocumented workers and raise penalties on those who violate those requirements. Yeah, because the people who are going to be getting a check out of the accounting department are really going to be the are really going to fail e-verify. Let me rephrase that. The people who are getting a documented check with their name on it and their address, are the ones who are going to fail E-Verify. It's like these people in Congress have no idea how this system works. Which they really don't. Because they've been sucking off the government fucking teat for sometimes 70 years at this point. But no, they... We're gonna give that $10 an hour minimum wage as long as employers use E-Verify. Okay, well, when the business owner reaches underneath the desk and starts handing out $100 bills, where does E-Verify come in? Uh, These people have no idea how this works, how to enforce any of this. E-Verify is only useful for the business owners that are honest enough to fill it out. However, I will walk back and say, okay, if we really want to have a minimum wage increase, I first off, I don't think it should be done at a federal level, but that's been my big standpoint for a very, very long time. There should be no federal minimum wage, and the states should decide what they need to do individually because costs of living are different from each state. But I will hand it to Senator Romney and Senator Manchin, uh, not Manchin, who's the other one? Cotton. Senator Cotton. That this is at least a more realistic number. They're not coming out automatically saying, okay, we're going to go double this now. No, this is at least somewhat realistic. And it'll only destroy maybe 500,000 jobs instead of a million. So. That's what they have for that. All right, let's keep going here. From the New York Post Officials with ties to Biden have reportedly been meeting with Iran to undermine Trump. From Kenneth Garger. Iranian Foreign Minister Z- uh, Javad Zarif met with multiple current Biden administration officials several years ago to undermine the former President Trump's dealings with the country, a report claims. What was it that they tried to get Flynn with the Hatch Act? Because this sounds an awful fucking lot like the Hatch Act. One of the meetings between Zarif and Robert Malley, now the special envoy for Iran policy, took place in 2019 after Trump withdrew the U.S. from the Obama-era Iran nuclear deal. The Washington Times reported on Sunday. Former Secretary of State John Kerry, John Kerry, also met with Zarif in the first few years of Trump's presidency which he had publicly acknowledged, and so did Obama-era Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz, the report said. While the exact details of what was discussed at the meetings was not clear, former senior U.S. officials told the newspaper that Zarif's goal was to devise a political strategy to undermine the Trump administration. Technically not the Hatch Act. Technically But that's pretty much only on a technicality because Zarif knew that he was dealing with somebody who wasn't in the administration to try and undermine the administration. But this is bordering so fucking close to the Hatch Act, it at least warrants a second look into it. Could we actually see somebody legitimately prosecuted by the Hatch Act? I have no idea, but it's... It really seems like it's, I mean, like I said, it's close. It's not there, but it's closed. The source said that Zarif was looking to regain support for the Iran nuclear deal or a similar agreement in case the next U.S. president was a Democrat. Mali, Kerry, and Moniz helped negotiate the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, pallets of cash, which curtailed the country's nuclear program. It didn't. In exchange for sanctions relief, pallets of cash. Trump withdrew from the deal in 2018 and reimposed economic sanctions on Tehran. Sources told the Times that Mali in his meeting with Zarif, likely urged Iranian officials to sit tight until 2021 when it was expected a democratic administration could restore the deal. Dude. Dude, that is some... Sh- well, it's government, so of course it's shady shit, but that is some shady shit. That... That's some conflict of interest kind of level shit. And now all these people are in the government in the executive branch. Definitely something I'd be looking at. All right, let's keep going from Politico. McConnell to support Garland for attorney general. From Marianne Levine. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will support Merrick Garland's nomination for Attorney uh, Attorney General five years after blocking the judge's path to the Supreme Court. I do, McConnell told Politico Tuesday afternoon, when asked if he plans to back Garland. The Kentucky Republican did not elaborate on his decision. In 2016, McConnell, who was Senate Majority Leader at the uh, time, declined to consider Garland's nomination by then-President Barack Obama to fill the vacancy left by the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. McConnell argued that the future of the high court seat was for the American people to decide given that it was a presidential election year and the White House and Senate were controlled by different parties. Senate Republicans have maintained that their decision to prevent Garland from receiving a hearing in 2016 was not personal. President Obama and his allies now try to pretend that this disagreement is about a person, McConnell said at the time, shortly after Obama formally nominated Garland. The decision the Senate announced weeks ago remains about a principle, not a person. Now, what it is, is he's sitting back at the beginning of the administration, not the end, so he can't sit back and hide behind the election coming up here. And he has no spine, and he's going to do whatever it takes once again to try and keep himself in as much power as his little turtley hands can handle. So this is all a power move. He's doing it for power. He doesn't give a fuck about the American people or the people of Kentucky. It's just about what's going to make him the most powerful person. Coming up in an election that actually looks like it's very favorable to the Democrats for the Senate. 2022 is going to be very favorable unless something major happens or Biden or Kamala do a major gaffe or a major authoritarian move. The Senate Democrats have a very, very easy map in 2022. 2024, not so much, but 2022, they've got a very, very easy map. But yes, he is going to vote for, so it looks like, I'm guessing Garland's going to go through. As far as for why not the Supreme Court and, you know, why the Attorney General, like I said, I think it's all a political move here. McConnell wants to be... Powerful and seen as favorable by the presidency. Somebody who will work with the presidency. And I don't think he's going to make it for, I mean, he's got another six years too to figure out what his next strategy is going to be. He's not back up for re election until 2026. So, a lot of things going on here, but we will see what happens off of that. Uh, let's go another one from the hill here. Schumer urges Democrats to stick together on a $1.9 trillion bill from Alexander Bolton. Senate Majority Leader uh, Charles U. Schumer warns Senate Democrats, including centrists, who are balking at certain elements of President Biden's proposal that a failure to pass the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill would be a political disaster. Schumer, who scored a win earlier this month when all 50 Democrats voted to pass a budget resolution, laying the groundwork for the bill, told colleagues on a conference call that they need to stay completely unified in the weeks ahead, which has been the story of Democrats in Congress for the last four years. Lockstep, you are not allowed to step outside the line. Excuse me. I made a pitch today to our entire caucus, and I said that we need to pass this bill, The American people, the American public demands it, and everyone's going to have things that they want to see in the bill, and we're working hard to see if we can get those things in the bill, he told reporters after holding a call with Senate Democratic Caucus on Tuesday. Job number one is to pass the bill. Pass the bill we must, and I have confidence that we will do it, Schumer said when he was asked about the power of centrists. Senator Joe Manchin, who says he opposes including a provision to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Schumer also has to worry about centrist senators John Tester and Kirsten Sinema, who have flashed independent streaks. Tester declined to say Tuesday whether he would support raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, explaining that he wanted to see if the Senate parliamentarian would approve allowing the provision in a package Democrats plan to pass with a simple majority vote under special budgetary rules, which once again I don't think that I don't think that flies. And I, of course, I don't understand why we can't have a well I understand why we can't have a single issue bill, but that's what we need to look at for this is just a single line single issue Let's give everyone a $2,000 check, if that's how you do it. There, there need to be way better provisions off of this, but all this is doing is getting their rich buddies richer. Very little of this is going into the hands of the American people, but the American people are still demanding it. So we will see where this goes, and hey, maybe this will fail somewhere off of this. Who knows? Maybe they'll have to actually go back and restructure it. And They already blew their wad on the uh, on the. Uh, budget reconciliation. So now they're going to have to build something that's filibuster proof if they do lose this. So we'll see what happens with that. All right, let's keep going here. I just, I do want to talk a bit about this because of the fact that Mansion and Cinema and Tester are up on the hot seat right now, too, because they're demonizing Mansion. And everything that he was going to... He was the independent one that started the independent streak with the rest of them here. And now, of course, they have to dig up all the dirt on the dude who's actually been there forever. And David W. Pippi is a member of the resistance, by the way. I don't know what he's resisting at this point. He's got a blue wave, so... But he is resisting either way. Remember the big EpiPen cost increase in 2016? Mylan's CEO was Heather Bresch. She's the daughter of Joe Manchin. Who's asking questions? Senator Amy Klobuchar and Center for American Progress Action Fund CEO Neera Tandon hold a Q&A on prescription drug prices. Can anybody add info? So, absolutely. They're going to try and burn Manchin to the ground as fast as they can. Alright. I've got one here from The Blaze, in which I'm going to yell at Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, GOP Needs to Make Clear That We Aren't the Party of White Supremacy From Breck Dumas House Republican Conference Chairwoman Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming said Tuesday that the GOP must make clear that we aren't the Party of White Supremacy, warning that the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol cannot be uh, minimized or trivialized. Speaking as the number three Republican in the House, Cheney addressed the Capitol siege, during an interview with the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute saying, it's very important for us to ignore the temptation to look away. It's very important, especially for us to make, uh, as Republicans, to make clear that we aren't the party of white supremacy. One second. Sorry about that. Um, all right. This is all that I have to say to Liz Cheney. Stop. That's it. That's it. As long as Democrats, both on the ground and in Congress, know that they have the bone and that you're worried about the fact that you're going to be called a white supremacist, they're going to keep moving the fucking goalposts. Do you realize that saying, I don't care about your skin color, means that you're white supremacist now? Do you realize that the position of, I don't want the government in my life, is white supremacy now? It doesn't matter what you do, Liz Cheney. You have an R next to your name. Everything that can possibly be construed to you as white supremacy is going to be white supremacy. And if you come back and tell them that you're worried about being called the white supremacy or your party being called the party of white supremacy, all they're going to do is move the goalposts to get you to pull further and further left. So no, that's not your primary concern right now. They don't. You don't need to make clear that you're not the party of white supremacy. Because that means that House Democrats and Senate Democrats control you. Because they can continue to move it. They move those goalposts further and further down the line. Until you're nothing but a Democrat with an R next to your name. So no, that's not what you need to do. All right, let's keep going. I got just a few more here. Uh, Looks like we've got some protests going on over here in Rochester. From WHAM ABC 13 out of Buffalo, hundreds take to the streets to demand police reform and justice for Daniel Prude. Hours after learning, a grand jury decided not to indict the officers connected to Daniel Prude's death. Hundreds gathered in the very spot where he encountered police last March. Like they did so many times last year, they marched. First, they called for change along Jefferson Avenue. Then they rallied outside the Child Street substation before marching on Interstate 490, at one point prompting the closure of a portion of the westbound lanes before arriving at the Public Safety Building. Jay Johnson has been to every protest since the body-worn camera video showing a naked crew detained and held down by officers was released last September. Some protesters have jumped over barricades and are standing in front of the doors to the Public Safety Building. Dozens of demonstrators made their way to the Rochester Public Safety Building, protesting the grand jury decision in the case of Daniel Prude. RPD officers in riot gear are in front of the police station on Child Street. He says the grand jury's decision not to indict any of the seven officers left him in shock. This is not what we expected. This is not what we wanted. And until there is justice in the system, they will not get any peace from us because it is our duty to fight for our freedom and abolish the system from the ground up. The
1: to let the family know that there was a no bill, no indictment.
0: In a statement, Interim Rochester Police Chief Cynthia Harriet Sullivan said, While the department respects the decision of the grand jury, it will continue with its investigation. The officers involved remain on leave.
1: And police. No justice. No peace.
0: For Johnson, and many of the protesters who took to the streets, that's not enough. We're going to have to see how that plays out, because reforming is nice and all, but it's like putting a band-aid on the situation instead of eradicating the situation entirely. Protesters are calling for the officers to be fired, some are calling for the departments to be abolished. The RPD says it's looking to make some internal changes to better serve citizens. There was no physical violence, no arrests, and no injuries, so... They've uh, toned down the protests, at least, from the ones that we saw up over the summer here. But, uh, of course, this isn't headline news either. I mean, this was buried all the way back in this show. Um, I haven't seen anything on any, any major national news talking about this. So this has been buried down as deep as they can possibly get it. Because it's not an election year. But we will see what comes back up out of this and where it goes. Let's keep going. I've got one from the Associated Press. South Dakota House moves to impeach AG after fatal crash. From Stephen Groves. South Dakota House lawmakers on Tuesday began impeachment proceedings against the state's attorney general, who is facing misdemeanor charges for striking and killing a man with his car and is already under pressure to resign. A bipartisan group of lawmakers filed a resolution in the House to impeach the state's top law enforcement officer, Jason Ravensborg, after he indicated Monday he would not heed calls for his resignation. The Republican AG faces three misdemeanor charges, but no felonies in se- September death of the 55-year-old Joseph Bover. Lawmakers argued in the impeachment resolution that Ravensborg should be removed from office for his crimes and misdemeanors in office causing the death of Bover. The resolution also stated that Ravensborg's conduct following the crash was unbecoming and his statements and actions failed to meet the standard of his office. When we started looking and thinking about the duties of the AG owes the people of South Dakota, and I think he owes a special duty to protect the people and uphold the laws, and I think that the actions of these incidents fell short of that duty, said Rep. Will Mortensen, who represents the area where the crash occurred and who sponsored the impeachment resolution. Well, I actually... I would, uh... I would say yes. <clears throat> because he got drunk, he killed a man with his car, and there was really no investigation into this afterwards, and I mean, the rest of us would be sitting in a cell forever, but he's the A.G. So at the very least he should resign, but, I mean, at this point, resigned and face charges, too. So yes, if he's not going to resign, they should impeach him. Force his resignation. Absolutely. So, we'll be watching this one as it goes along. Alright, from my neighboring state and the home state of a few people in my audience here, Illinois lawmakers want to ban Grand Theft Auto amid spike in carjackings. From Tia Ewing, over at Fox 32 out of Chicago. People have been saying for months now that teens are running around Chicago and carjacking motorists like it's a video game. But now local lawmakers are doubling down on the idea, saying video game Grand Theft Auto should be banned. Some of the carjacking suspects are not even old enough to drive. On Monday, a 16-year-old was charged, and days ago, two 15-year-olds were arrested and charged as well. Philanthropist Early Walker says violent video games like GTA could be influencing young minds. Walker met with Illinois state rep Marcus Evans in January, and from there, legislation was drafted to amend a 2012 law preventing some games, including GTA, from being sold to children in Illinois. Different versions of GTA have been banned or censored in five different countries, but never in the U.S. This is really the road that you want to go down, guys. This is it. This is what you guys want to see. This past Friday, a former police officer was carjacked in his own driveway in the south suburbs. The car was later found in Harvey, with the young suspect still in it. These guys feel like they're going to get right back out, especially since they're juveniles, said retired police officer Vincent Sims. DePaul University psychology professor Leonard Jason told Fox 32 the game could be the cause of violence, but it's not the only factor. Well, yeah, we're sitting here at a situation where, A, first and foremost, we're still under lockdown, especially in Chicago. It's probably one of the more locked down cities that's out there. But it's still under lockdown. People are bored to shit. They can't go hang out with their friends. And yes, they are going into playing a bunch of video games. But, you know, it's end the lockdowns. Get people back to work. Get people back out doing things. Get the tourism back up and people going back out among, along the Navy Pier. That kind of stuff. Instead of banning a video game. But, I mean, that's nothing new. They've been blaming the video games since, as far as I can remember, back in the Mario Brothers days, they were. Blaming the video games for the violence that was going to happen in the world. Doom, Mario Brothers, it's all violence. It's all rotting people's brains. It's going to lead to all kinds of delinquency. That's what I've been hearing literally my entire life. And if it's Grand Theft Auto that you're so worried about, and the RA Conservative brought up a very good point on this last night when uh, when he talked about this. I mean, what were you doing before Grand Theft Auto 3 came out? Even back in Grand Theft Auto 2 days, in the 90s, before there was Grand Theft Auto and Grand Theft Auto 2, what were you doing then? Because there were still carjackings going on. Back in the 80s, back in the 70s, there was still crime, there were still carjackings. Not to mention the fact that you've come out and said that we need to defang and defund our police. Now, as I said yesterday, I'm not a fan of people being picked up and arrested for a victimless crime, like jaywalking, or the dude that died because he was jaywalking. But this is not a victimless crime. This is hurting people and taking their stuff. That's what we need law enforcement for. Not, oh, well, you were walking down the middle of the road, so now I'm going to take you in and see what I can find on you. And anything you say and do can be used against you in a court of law. But this is actually hurting people and taking their stuff. So this is what we need the law enforcement for. This is a legitimate form of government. So ramp that up. Get rid of the stupid laws that you have on your books about, oh, well, you were just smoking a joint in your bedroom when you're going to federal prison now. And don't do stupid shit like this. All right. Got just a couple more here. and We'll do something I'm thankful for and head out of here. Indiana House Votes to Eliminate License to Carry a Handgun in State From David Arrow The Indiana House voted on Monday to eliminate the license to carry a handgun in the state, an apparent victory, at least temporarily, for supporters of the Second Amendment gun rights. House Bill 1369, which passed the House by a 65-31 to 31 vote, and now heads to the Senate, repeals a law that requires a person to obtain a license to carry a handgun in Indiana, according to the Indianapolis Star. It allows for any person who is lawfully able to carry and possess a firearm to do so without a government-issued permit or license, reports said. The bill specified that certain offenders could still be prohibited from carrying handguns. Supporters of the bill argue that the permit process punishes law-abiding citizens and residents shouldn't have to pay for the rights guaranteed by the Second Amendment. Anything that can make things easier for somebody who is a law-abiding citizen is always something that I think I'm going to support, said Indianapolis gun owner Eric Hausman, according to Fox 59 of Indianapolis. Police, however, argued that eliminating the screening process would put more guns in the streets, make communities less safe. I don't know, man. Every metric I've ever seen shows that a well-armed society is a polite society, so I think that would probably go the other direction, but, you know... What do I know? I know I wouldn't want to mess with somebody that I saw or suspected was carrying. I think we're all very strong supporters of the Second Amendment, said Lafayette Police Chief Patrick Flanelly with the Indian Association of Police uh, Chiefs of Police. By repealing processes like these that are good screening mechanisms, we're going to put more guns out on the street. And there are going to be people that should not be carrying them will be carrying them. that's not for you to decide. And the Constitution says that pretty explicitly. In fact, the reason for a Second Amendment is because the founders knew that there were going to be people like you in the enforcement of law that were going to believe such silly things. So no, this is definitely a win. Definitely 100% a win. And we're starting to see more of this come back across the country. I'm going to talk about this just a little bit later. But we are starting to see more of this come back across the country. And I'm pretty happy about it. All right, we got to get to the celebrity news. Let this load up for just a second. I'm Tiger Woods. I'm Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods badly injured in car crash. First driving video minutes before the accident. TMZ Sports obtained the first video of Tiger Woods driving Tuesday morning on Hawthorne Boulevard minutes before the crash. The surveillance video shows two vehicles heading uphill. Tiger's Genesis GV80 SUV is trailing behind a minivan at just past 7.05 a.m. Pacific time. You can see the logo on the door for the Genesis Invitational Golf Tournament for which Tiger was in town. He didn't appear to be driving exceptionally fast at this point. Remember cops say they got The call about Tiger's accident at 7.12 a.m., where this video was shot is roughly five miles south of where he wrecked. You can see there's a big curve in the road, not unlike the spot where he crashed, except that was downhill where he'd likely be carrying more speed in the turns. Albert Conta, a member of the crew working on the TV show "Grownish," recounted to us on video what the director said about Tiger nearly hitting his car just before 7 a.m., TMZ has learned Tiger was staying at the hotel where a major network television show was being shot. Production sources tell TMZ when the director arrived just before 7 a.m., Tiger was driving his SUV very fast as he was leaving the property and almost hit the director's car. The director was shaken enough to tell production staff about it after he parked. So, there's the car. There's the airbag. Tiger's good friend Donald Trump issued a statement about the crash saying, Get with us here tiger you're a true ta- champion hey uh let me hear you going to be on the southbound traffic lane between tv drive, TV drive north Spur. can i get a unit to go ahead and start blocking off uh southbound traffic from uh tv drive north hey sir 173 i do take that 172 hey uh go ahead each of those cars, the last ones, we have all uh, southbound traffic blocked off from Hawthorne and north. Copy, thank you.
1: Hey, ma'am, do we have
0: an ETA uh, for fire? We have a rollover with someone uh, trapped. Yes, got
1: off the phone with them, let me call them back. Is there a Limedian in 9106? <laughs> uh, um, 71, cop you.
0: Hey, I'm gonna need uh, a unit to, uh, Accompany the ambulance, transport to HDH please. So, and that's, um, let me see if I got the video just before. No, that's just the scene of the wreckage there. So, they claim that they have the video just before. I've yet to see it, but, um, I mean, I'm not big on golf, so I, I know that Tiger Woods is a very, very impressive golfer. And he's done very well for himself in the sport. He's had his issues. He's had his demons. He has been screwing around for most of the time that he has been a golfer. Didn't he go through a divorce off that too at some point here? And he has had substance abuse issues. People were saying that the that his SUV was flying, which means that he was probably cooking at that point. I don't. I don't know enough details about this. And like I say, this kind of almost escaped my my purview but I know a lot of you guys would have wanted to see it so we got to talk just a bit about it but uh yeah he was he was cooking if his vehicle was flying but I hope he gets better looks like he might not be playing golf for a little while if his uh, legs are all busted up so we'll see what happens with that all right and the last one I have before we do something that I'm thankful for is another car related thing because I'm kind of a car guy This one comes to us from the New York Post. USPS unveils new sleek-looking mail trucks. Are you guys ready to see what this looks like? There it is. That's your new mail truck right there. For those of you listening back on the audio, you don't want to see this. You really don't. It is hideous. I mean, the LLV wasn't exactly attractive, but it was functional. But this thing is just wow. Alright. This is from David Meyer. Truck, yeah! The U.S. Postal Service on Tuesday unveiled a modern replacement for the iconic Grumman LLV mail truck that has been in use since the late 1980s. The new design consists of a waist-high front hood that resembles the front beak of a duck in front of an extra-high windshield. Oshkosh Defense has been contracted to build between 50,000 and 165,000 of the new trucks over the next 10 years, replacing vehicles that have been in service for as long as three decades, USPS said in a statement. Oshkosh's design was not completely finalized. USPS said the initial order of trucks will cost $482 million with the first vehicles expected to hit the roads in 2023. I've never understood for a second why the mail or uh, why the US Postal Service had to have their own unique vehicle that couldn't be obtained anywhere else. Now, mind you, I would love to get my hands on an LLV, but good luck with ever getting anything back up out of the government. But yes, I would definitely buy a used mail truck, a used LLV because They look cool. They look like you could actually have a lot of fun with the thing, and they're like completely indestructible almost. There is so much sheet metal and bumper on those things that I don't think that you could hit that thing hard enough to bust it. Solid drivetrain that's, uh, I mean, some of them probably have a million miles on them at this point, but even still, solid, easily buildable modular drivetrain that you can go back and just pull parts off another one if you do happen to wreck one. But why do they have to have their own unique vehicle? Why can't the U.S. Postal Service just go down to the local Ford dealer and say, okay, I need 40 transit vans, but I need you to make them all right-hand drive. That seems like that would be way easier, probably a lot more cost-effective. $482 million to do this on an agency that is supposedly broke on top of all that. The truck revamp is part of the Postal Service's self-stated plan to become the preferred delivery service provider of the American people. Good luck with that, because UPS and FedEx are kicking your ass six ways to Sunday. And even Amazon gave up on you because you cost too much at this point. Your ass is being kicked seven ways to Sunday, and you want to come. You think that getting a new van that looks that hideous is going to save you. And I mean, the thing's going to be solid. That much I can come out and say, because Oshkosh is a good company. I've worked with Oshkosh before. It's a good company. They build good, solid vehicles, so they're good at that. But I mean, just, like I said, go down, buy 40 transit vans. Slap the USPS logo on the side of them. and Send them on down the road. They're cheap. They're easy to repair. And you can go get parts from anywhere. And yes, you probably could. Especially if you're the government could come out and say, Hey, I want these in right-hand drive. They use them in Europe where it's right-hand drive. So I don't... I don't understand why they need to come out and do this and have their own main vehicle. But, you know... The government's going to do what the government's going to do, I guess. And the government does enjoy spending money. All right, and that's it for the news here. So the last thing that we do on a Wednesday is something that I am thankful for, and there's always so much to be thankful for. And I really did have to think about this, but I wanted to keep this kind of in tune with the news that we're looking at here as well. So we talked about Indiana and the fact that they're going off and repealing their license to carry which is good. And I'm very thankful, just on a side note, of the fact that I live in a state that does have open carry. You don't need to conceal, well, yeah, you don't need any sort of permit to just open carry. You just throw the thing on your hip. You can't conceal it. You can't hide it away. But you toss the thing on your hip and you go about your day. And people get all pissy and give you weird looks about it. But still, you're allowed to. You just toss it on and go. But I'm very happy to see some of these laws get overturned. We just talked last week about Missouri, and no, that wasn't last week, that was on Monday, we talked about Missouri and the fact that they're letting their sheriff's deputies go and arrest the feds we are going to enforce federal gun laws because Missouri says, no, these federal gun laws are unconstitutional, and we're going to arrest the people who are violating the Constitution who are going to come into our state and try to take our people's guns away. That's a good thing. I'm, we're moving towards a trend of more self-sufficiency in some of these states, and the idea is going to catch on in other states. Hope, I'm, you're never going to see something like this in New York unless it gets really, really popular in the rest of the country. And I know Illinois was one of the last ones to allow concealed carry once that fad started going in. And I'm so glad that uh, that trend started happening too. But Illinois held on to the bitter end until literally every other state had done it. And then they said, okay, well, now we're going to do con- uh, concealed carry and we're going to allow this to happen too. So the focus is shifting People are starting to distrust the government on both sides of the aisle. There are still progressives that believe that the government should do everything that uh, everything for you from the cradle to the grave, but there are more and more people that are looking back at this and saying, "Okay, well, it's time for us to do our own thing." So, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to get to live in this time where people were ceding their freedoms over to the government and. Now they're looking at this and saying, why the fuck did we do this? We want our freedom back. I'm thankful to see that. I'm thankful to see that the libertarian message of personal freedom has come to the people as well. So I'm glad I get to watch this. I'm glad I get to share this with a LP Party Proper co-host as well because she's always got good things to say about this as well. But just as a matter, I'm glad to see that America is trying to become a free nation again. It's been stripped away from us for a very long time, but we're at least trying at this point. So good on the American people for that. And on that... Give that a second. We're going to head on out of here for the day. So we'll be back here tomorrow, but I want to remind everybody that I'm going to do a Ed Talk and call-in show coming up here on the weekend so go up and tell your friends i'm probably going to make the event after work here so you guys can start sharing out the link for it but yeah i want to get on here i want to hear what you guys think about everything that's going on around the country as well so i want to turn everything back over to the audience i love doing that and we will see what happens there anything can happen especially once we've got the call in uh, number up because hey you know what you got to get your uh, hover your hand over that dump button and hope somebody doesn't drop a word that they're not supposed to but looking forward to seeing what you guys have to say Looking forward to that. Otherwise, we'll see you guys here tomorrow for more contemporary. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary.